When it comes to maximizing time in the uplands, without fail, Onyx Hunt is my most valuable tool. From planning my next hunt through a new bird cover to navigating in the field, Onyx Hunt is truly with me wherever I go. With detailed mapping and satellite imagery, along with a multitude of map layers from land access to forestry and habitat information and easy-to-use tools to mark, measure, and catalog important information, Onyx Hunt seamlessly integrates digital scouting with boots-on-the-ground time in the field. With offline mapping and Apple CarPlay integration, you are free to explore the wild landscapes our beloved upland birds inhabit. Planning your next move in the uplands begins with knowing where you stand, and for me, that starts and stops with Onyx Hunt. Download the Onyx Hunt app today and use the promo code BSP20 to save 20% on your Onyx Hunt subscription. When the miles rack up faster than your flush count, that's when you'll truly appreciate your hunting vest from Final Rise. Built for the uplands and proudly sewn in the USA, the complete lineup of hunting vests from Final Rise, from their all-new Summit XT down to the minimalist Sidekick system, are all built upon the foundational load-bearing waist belt and low-profile shoulder strap system, which allow you to carry all the gear you need and do so comfortably while maintaining your ability to move freely and perform when you need to most. With a complete lineup of accessories and newly released performance field apparel, Final Rise has the gear you need to help you get the most out of every mile and every flush. Final Rise gear is built for the uplands. Get yours today at FinalRise.com. This is the Birdshot Podcast presented by Onyx Hunt, Upland Institute, Yukonuba Sporting Dog, and Upland Gun Company. On this episode of the show, we're back with Kyle Warren for part two in the conclusion of our interview on rough grouse hunting and how our dogs find these birds. Thanks for tuning in to episode number 165. All right, welcome back to the Birdshot Podcast, everybody. Part two and the conclusion of my interview with Kyle Warren coming up in just a moment. But first, thank you to all my Patreon supporters out there. As you recall, last week we announced the winner of the January giveaway, Brian from Minnesota taking home the gift basket from Montana Fly Company. This month, the winner will have their choice of the complete training series from Upland Institute, Bird Dog Video Training Series from Justin McGrail and Ron Bame, or an Onyx Hunt elite subscription card winner's choice all you got to do is be a patreon supporter before the end of february you got some time left to do that and don't forget can coolers and birdshot podcast stickers headed out to patreon supporters very soon as soon as i dig out of this blizzard and can get over to the post office we'll start getting that stuff sent out to patreon supporters Starts at five bucks a month. Thank you for considering it. And don't forget, anybody out there listening, use the code BSP20. That's BSP20 to save 20% on your OnX Hunt subscription. And it's the off season, but perhaps some of you out there are thinking about maybe a new shotgun for the fall season. Well, there's still some time left if you are considering designing and building a gun from Upland Gun Company. Get that order in now. So I've got a really good chance of getting that before the fall hunting season. I've got one being built right now. Can't wait to get my hands on it a little bit later this year and hunt with it this fall. If you got questions about Upland Gun Company, I'm always happy to answer those. Send me a message or an email. Learn more about it at uplandguncompany.com. 
All right, let's get back into it with Kyle Warren, part two and the conclusion of our interview, Rough Grouse Hunting, How Our Dogs Find Them. Heard from a lot of people regarding part one. Enjoyed the conversation, shared some thoughts, experiences, perspective. I've, I've really enjoyed those conversations with the listeners of part one. And if you are up to speed, I think you'll find part two equally as enjoyable. Kyle and I jump right back into it, talking plenty of rough grouse hunting, bird dogs, scent theory, scent behavior, and the things that make chasing upland birds with our bird dogs so uniquely interesting. All right, let's get back into it and welcome into the conversation and back to the Birdshot podcast of Paint River Llewellyn's Kyle Warren. Okay. Yeah, I have an answer for everything. It's not always what everyone wants to hear. <laughs> but I have an answer yeah, yeah, for that's all right. That's all right. The, you know, the, yeah, not. that's that's the that's the the fun part about this. So, all right, sure. on the subject of dogs with hot noses, cold nose, colder noses, hotter noses, that kind of thing, there's an example that jumps out at me in my mind. Is one of my hunts. It, towards the end of the year, it was a December hunt. Don't remember. Actually, I think it was December. I'm going to say December 14th, day after my birthday. I didn't get to go hunting on my birthday, but I got to go the day after and had a nice little <laughs> run through the woods with, with Rose. And on this particular hunt, there were one to two inches of snow on the ground. So pretty much full coverage, uh, some open patches, you know, kind of like hanging on to good hunting conditions. It was a really nice day to be in the woods. It was, it was either high twenties or low thirties. And I remember just really enjoying myself out there. But anyways, we're hiking through this territory and I come across multiple sets of grouse tracks whether it was two three four birds i don't know there was a whole bunch of grouse tracks crisscrossing through this area beautiful little spot in the edge of a larger swamp opening and this is kind of where the high ground just rises up out of the swamp and there's it's relatively mature forest but there's lots of hazel brush and and just enough stuff to kind of sustain the birds well anyways i see these tracks rose is not near me and i decide to just stop park myself there wait for Rose to come back around and see if she scents or acknowledges these tracks. In my mind, these are fairly fresh. I think there was a, a recent snowfall that these tracks, obviously they could be, you know, minutes old or they could be a day or two old. I don't suspect they were much older than that, but I don't know because we didn't flush any birds. Anyways, Rose comes cruising through. She does not point but she does acknowledge the tracks in a very obvious way. She's comes cruising through, slows down, stops, turns around. She's lowers her head and starts sniffing around the two of us. I just, I think she just kind of like followed that somewhere and moved on and we continued in the general direction. And like I said, we didn't get into birds in an immediate fashion to say, Oh yeah, those, those girls left those tracks. So who knows how long they were there. When I describe that scenario to you, what does that, like, are, is there anything I can draw from that with my true dog running over a set of tracks and clearly acknowledging them? Yeah. I mean, I would, uh, yeah, I got a, a lot of uh, <laughs> feedback running through my head when you, when you're giving me all those details and that's very detailed for me to give a detailed answer. Um, you know, and I, I think also just as a, obviously as a grouse hunter for you, um, a couple of scenarios, uh, that I was, I, as you're kind of this the scenarios unfolding that you're telling me I'm, I'm kind of accumulating these questions and you're answering some of them that that are important you know going back to the idea of a couple of things one like knowing your dog okay you know so uh we've talked about you know kind of learning what your dog's nose potency is um as as an element uh that 
can play a role in, you know, reading your dog and figuring things out. Two, just scent conditions, right? So it varies, again, according to nose potency uh, to a degree. But certainly my experience in search and rescue tracking trailing where the dog is, um, you know, we're doing scent discriminant searches. We train in, you know, for this, you know, three to five times a week with the dog. And it's amazing. And if I know we always kind of threaten that we're going to hunt together and someday, (laughs) hopefully we will. But if if, uh, you're over this way, you know, um, remind me to dig out of my basement, my search and rescue tracking trailing training logs so I can show you how ground scent behaves, you know, um, and, and how body scent behaves uh, when we're look, talking about tracking trailing like a human being. You know, my, my dog, we've done tracks that were over 51 hours old, you know, and you success unknown yeah, tracks. Like you knew I that. I did not know yeah. what it was. Yeah. So, you know, but we had the, the person, the subject lays the track with their GPS. And then, you know, when I'm running the track. Um, you know, with my dog, I have my GPS on me and we were superimposed my track on top of the trail layers track, you know, and we're doing this on like terrain navigator pro, you know, and we, we get to see, we get to see how scent behaves over that span of time with the weather that's happened, you know, and it's, uh, you know, again, always, this stuff was always mind blowing when you start to accumulate hundreds and hundreds of tracking trailing logs, you know, that are ranging in age from a 15 minute hot track you know to something that's over two days old and again all year round all different weather but one of the things i would definitely say that i've seen is that um a tracking dog uh and we're talking about colder colder nose uh aspects of um of this now you know start to uh diminish when we start to get around 20 degrees or so in terms of ground scent and probably because the scent literally gets frozen, you know, so if it's mm-hmm. if it's older scent, you know, um, and scent composition or qualities based on moisture content, then I'm uh, I'm probably, uh, you know, looking at a scenario where you're not going to have, you know, a lot of older tracks that the dogs are picking up on. So but it depends on the nose quality and caliber of the dog as to whether or not that's going to happen. So so that's one thing to realize is that. Uh, if you're in the 20s or 30s, then we're probably going to say that the scent available, whatever scent is uh, in that track is still going to be, I don't want to use the word active, but we'll say active, you know, for the dog to smell if the dog has a nose potency for it. Mm-hmm. So therefore, I would say that, um, you know, uh, if Rose isn't picking up on it and she's, you know, from videos that uh, we're, we'll go into later, let's just call her a true dog that does hot tracking that's probably going to be at least several hours old, I would I would guess. Now, the other thing, just as a grouse hunter that I would do, I would do the exact same thing you did. I, I find tracks, and, you know, when we only have a few inches of snow on the ground, it is a, a cool additional dimension of grouse hunting, you know, for us to be able to see those tracks so cleanly, you know. So, yeah, I would stop, too. I wait for my dog to get over there and see if they pick it up. And whether they pick it up or not, you know, I'm going to start to follow those tracks basically to the end. Sure. You know, and uh, but, you know, we've talked about uh, I think we've talked about how, you know, in terms of as a hunter, you you can notice when and where uh, a grouse in the snow, a grouse that's on the ground in the snow uh, goes from being not pressured and comfortable to pressured and picking up its speed based on the cleanliness of its tracks, yeah. you know, so. So I'm looking at that. So if I come across tracks and they're just like, you know, scuffed up, blur, you know, roadrunner looking type things, 
then that bird was probably aware that we were, you know, in that vicinity or coming into that vicinity, you know, and it's moving, you know, and usually you'll notice that your dogs are picking up on those tracks more readily because that's super fresh scent. So if you come across tracks that are like clean, just little footprints, you know, yeah, they could be very old. And, you know, my dogs often, again, temperature dependent as well, but they might not acknowledge them, but I'll follow them up until either you see those, again, the two feet, perfectly in line that they flushed up and flew somewhere you know or um, again you just start to see that tempo and the track picking up based on how the snow is getting kicked so you know to the extent that you give those details i would just say that it was probably you know a fairly old track and uh you follow it up more especially that time of the season it's probably find a lot of birds that way (laughs) you know by by following the tracks that way the the name of the game is how often it happens like you know Maybe the dog's not pointing, uh, uh, working the track for starters, but as we get closer, they do pick up on it at some point when it, when scent to them does become available, mm-hmm. you know, and then it's just a matter of, you know, I got my head down looking at these tracks while the dog's working up the track further. And can the dog find and point the bird before the bird decides to flush? <laughs> you know, that becomes the, the name of the game with the bird that's running through the snow and deciding, you know, what it's going to do. Yeah. Um, but yeah. Figuring out the behavior of the bird based on looking at the tracks in the snow, coupled with if the dog acknowledges or not, tells you how old those tracks are in terms of, it might not tell you, it doesn't tell us that the track is three hours old or one hour old or six hours old, but it tells you that, you know, okay, I'm going to keep moving up this track because, you know, it's cold enough, you know, cold enough trail that the dog isn't getting it yet. So, you know, and your dogs might just point the bird, you know, under a tree 70 yards ahead from from your lead of you going and just working in that general direction and i always recommend that people you learn so much about the birds behavior at least their behavior in late season anyhow i've been surprised and impressed you know at like how far these birds will walk you know i'm like oh i'm gonna follow this track you know and 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 often it might be a pair of them or something like that and and they'll be walking i mean i've I've gone hundreds and hundreds of yards and and sometimes they're walking through like some really mature aspen stands you know that like there's nothing on the ground like i can't believe they're they're just walking this brown bird is just cruising across this stuff you know nice and slow you know meandering around a tree walking around a tree trunk and and then going you know and uh you know lo and behold eventually uh, again we either get to a bird you know or whether it's me finding that bird, you know, or whether it's the dog eventually having scent become available uh, to find that bird, or we find the, you know, double foot up, up in the sky kind of thing. And, and uh, might've mentioned in the past, if it's a slow, steady track the whole way in terms of footprints and there's no scuffing up, you know, the odds are that the bird's sitting in a tree within 10 to 40 yards somewhere, you know? Um, if and, if uh, you come to the, the end of it and it never, yeah, if you come it to the end got, of it. Yeah. I gotcha. Yeah, it never, it never got crazy looking. Like, it was always nice, clean prints. Oh. That was a bird that was never stressed and fl- and flew up before you ever got there, you know? So I'll, I'll do circles. I'll do, like, increasing, like, 20, 40, 50-yard circles around that launch area, you know, um, if the weather's conducive to allow scent to come down, you know, rather than just be, we got a steadier wind or something late season, which can happen more so in the late season, but cooler temperatures you know and not any prevailing winds and especially towards like the end of the day when the sun's you know kind of in our eyes and not on our backs you know those are scent conditions that would promote a dog much more being able to point a bird in a tree you know and then it's the 
whack-a-mole, you know, kicking kicking uh, <laughs> trunks of trees and wondering if you can see the bird in the tree to try to get it to fly, you know, but you know, I have a, I have a definitely a noteworthy percentage of success with that scenario and, and doing that kind of strategy to, to try to aid and trying to find the bird. That's probably just decided that, you know, it's, uh, it's done for the day. Yeah. Yeah. Very interesting. It, I, I don't recall exactly how this played out, but it, me talking about it and then you sort of going into it, it's like bringing back flashbacks from that day. It was only, it was only two months ago, but my memory's a little fuzzy on this and this I guess would maybe be a reason to or it would be nice if I had uh if I was always rolling my camera, but I the GoPro that I use, I kinda run it in a looping mode and I only save certain clips while I'm out in the woods, which has its advantages. This would be a disadvantage. I know it was not long after this, but I, I think there was enough of a gap between this little incident with the tracks and the bird contact that I don't think I directly connected the two in my mind. Um, but mm-hmm. anyways, w- I kept moving along the swamp edge. It was like a very clear objective that I was working here. And at, remember at one point I was cruising along and Rose was behind me and she ended she wound up on point. And so I remember I had to stop and kind of turn around and readjust. And she was a, she was a good ways away. I think probably over a hundred yards. And so I start working my way back mm-hmm. And I eventually get to, or I get close to her and she starts moving up. And then this is, this is something that we'll, we'll talk about a little bit, I think, but Rose starts where she's kind of hot tracking and, you know, in the moment you don't really know what's going on. Obviously she was pointing something. She had something she's moving and I'm working. This is pretty open, open woods, but again, it's just, it's this late season cover that I kind of like to hunt. And usually bird contacts are relatively few and far between, but I feel like when we do get them tend to get really good dog work. And anyways, she starts moving along and we get to this point where she's locked up pretty good. I can see her. So I know, you know, I'm in the game now. And I remember I got to a point where I had to kind of go up this, I had a choice. I could either go right up next to Rose, which I know we talked about this in our first attempt. We haven't talked about much in during this interview, but we will, or I could kind of go up this rise and try to circle out and around and in so doing, I remember as I was walking up this hill, I thought, well, this is it. You know, any grouse is going to see me coming up this hill and they're going to go. Well, it, that kind of happened, but it, it didn't completely happen. As I was going up, a bird did go well out of range, like 50 yards. And so then I started, but Rose, Rose was still there. I, I started moving up towards this big pine tree. It was kind of a lone pine tree in the middle of this open area. And all of a sudden birds started getting out of there, like two, three, four. And I think when all was said and done, I think five had gone and I was getting closer. Like I was almost in range now. And I saw some movement in this dark shadow underneath this pine tree. And I walked up there and that one was, uh, not the, uh, clearly not the brightest of the bunch. It hung around too long. It allowed me to get too close and it finally flushed out the other side. And I did get that bird, but that was a group of six, six birds. And just in my mind, I'm like, well, you know, I don't know how long ago they were over there where Rose sent to those tracks, but in all likelihood, it very well could have been that same group of birds. And I'm not saying she tracked it from one spot to the other, but it's pretty, pretty possible. I think in my mind that it was the same group and they were just kind of meandering around that area for, you know, however, however length of time. Yeah. No, I mean, it's, uh, you know, I, I guess, the. You know, if you could go back and you could take your little spaceship back in time and yes. you followed those tracks to the end, that's the only way I guess you'd really know, exactly. right? Um, yeah. 
but um it it is amazing i mean you get you get on some tracks and you just see them to the end um uh, especially if it's, it's kind of like late morning you know i feel like the longest tracks are late morning because like the birds come out of the trees you know um they're and their legs yeah they're, they're just they're like waking up they're getting in their groove and they start walking around and yeah, I mean it's it's quite amazing on how far they'll walk, and it's and it's quite surprising in what open cover, especially in wintertime, that yep. they'll walk through. You know, so there's a lot of, you know, all these uh, these fifty Facebook bird dog groups that we all belong to. You know, and, and you know, people ask for recommendations on habitat and stuff like that, and you know, of course, classic edges, you know, terrain features. You know, these are things that that certainly we want to do, you know, we, we look for, you know, um, you know, certain forts, certain food sources, certain times of the season that becomes more like the main course, you know, and stuff like that. But you can, uh, you know, I, I reference our, our buddy Mike once in a while, cause I know he's one of the few people that both of us have hunted with, yeah. you know? Um, and, uh, you know, you can ask him about some of the hunts of the, some of the covers that I brought him through, you know, he'll tell you that it's so thick that you don't think you can come out with your eyeballs and, <laughs> and you know, and you can't move to it feels like uh we're looking for shark tails almost you know and and you know he and i have found birds in in all those covers you know it's i I just uh i believe that um especially i think even more so when there's so much contiguous habitat in the places that you and i hunt Mm -hmm. i think birds are just as likely to be in the marginal habitat because they don't ever have to go far to be in good habitat you know, when you look at the East Coast states and you're in this um, uh, much more defined pocket cover by hay fields that can be hundreds of acres, you know, and then a, a 50 yard wide poplar tree line that feeds into a few acres of hawthorn or an old orchard or something like that's where the birds are going to be. They're going to be on that stone wall and they're going to be in that tree line and they're going to be in that orchard, you know, period. <laughs> you know, they're not going to be in the middle of that hay field. But I've kicked up plenty of rough grouse in the lake states in grassy fields that have like no timber and not really a lot of food because they don't have to go that far. And yet they're still kind of in cover, you know. So, you know, to me, marginal to minimal habitat areas really only become such when for greater distances, there is not good habitat. Um, So, you know, that's that's just you know, food for thought and in, in that, uh, in that capacity, but you know, yeah, I mean, you'd have to follow grouse tracks to see where they go, but I, I'm always, I mean, it's an education, you know, every time you do. And, um, you know, it's, uh, uh, <laughs> I, I, I don't know how many miles of grouse tracks I've, I've followed in the woods, uh, to basically see that they could be anywhere. Yeah. You know, so. <laughs> yeah. I, I do think there's something to that. And I think, that is probably parallel with or the inspiration of and people say this about more than just rough grouse but i do think it's extremely true with rough grouse especially in this area it's like grouse are where you find them right it's just yeah they're i mean and i've said this before if you're in the woods in this part of the world you're in grouse cover it just absolutely i don't know how many are there and i don't know if they're there on that day but if you're in the woods you're in grouse cover and there's a lot something to be said about that Mm -hmm. and i think as i have tried to sort of think outside the aspen right the aspen cut i mean they're like you're alluding to 
there's probably a, a prime age, quote unquote, prime age Aspen cut in pretty close proximity to almost anywhere I am. But I almost am like, have made it a point over the last few years to, to really hunt. I mean, I talk about being on the edge of those things, but you know, if I can, if I have a choice to walk between, walk between the stems of a nine-year-old Aspen cut or walk through the mature stems on the outside of it, like I'm walking on the outside of it. And Mm -hmm. in in this video that I think we'll talk about with Hartley, I actually kind of point that out that I showed you. Let me ask you this. Have you ever spent any time walking in or through and, and seeing grouse in like very young clear cuts, like wide open clear cuts? When I, Nick, I have found an abundance of birds. When we're talking lake states, yep. everywhere. I have found abundance of birds in maple stands yeah. that there is nothing on the ground, you know, uh, at all. And these maple stands are like 80-year-old trees. You know? I, I've so, seen that once um, or twice, but uh, yeah, I have as well. Well, you know, it's uh, there's different transitional times. I mean, the maple spinners, you know, mm-hmm. uh, when you're not finding birds in classic cover, you know, I won't. I won't give all the secrets away here you know but you know when you when, when you're not finding birds in great great cover where you feel they should be at a certain time of the year almost a certain week you know uh i can go to my maple covers you know and and there they are you know um it's uh it, it's crazy you know but you how many times you know you're going through quote-unquote pass-through cover to yep. get to the next cover you know and you're just holding your gun down you're hoofing it because you're just working the clock here you know and you know, getting the dog up ahead of you to try to get to that Aspen stand or those conifers that you see like 150, 300 yards ahead of you. And all of a sudden a bird or two blows out of the, out of behind a stump or, you know, they, they, they come careening like six of them sitting on a, a maple tree branch, you know, 30 feet in the air, they come careening in every direction, you know, it's just, so yeah, I, again, I think the key, the key is um, as long as they're, they don't have to go too far the ha- for habitat and it's again it's different regionally you know for us you know uh our birds i i have no doubt you know and i'm sure there's many biologists that would beg to differ but i have no doubt that you know like birds around my property um that i i don't really shoot but i work i have no doubt like in in early season like i'm finding those same birds close to up to a mile away because there's dogs chasing them every single day Hmm. you know um, every day, you know, they're not stupid. We like to brag how smart this bird is. And, you know, <laughs> uh, it's not mating season. They haven't like set up, you know, the young ones haven't like set up territories yet. Like how many times are they going to be chased and chased and chased? I think they move and they have escape covers and they, they try to triangulate their, their flight, you know, um, as best they can. But, uh, you know, I just don't think it's coincidence. that when I go half a mile, three quarters of a mile away, the 12 birds that I was finding and finding, and now I don't find any. And then I just kind of, in a linear sense, keep moving up through the habitat. I, then I find 12 birds, you know, I, I, I believe that they're largely the, the same 12 birds when I didn't find any. And we're talking, you know, preseason conditioning and stuff where I got six dogs on the ground. This isn't like one dog, one man going through a cover and, and seeing what they find one day and not the next, you know, I just, I think that they, I think that they constantly move a lot more. Whereas back East, you know, when we're talking mountain country, you know, all up and down the East coast, a dog points a bird in a pocket cover and it flies, it coasts half a mile to down the valley, to the other mountainside and the other side of the valley. 
And that bird comes back, but it might take it five or seven days, but that's its escape route. Yeah. And that's what, that's what those birds will do. Our birds don't do that. You know, early season, they're not clearing the canopy. It's flat here, you know, and late season, they're clearing the canopy, but they're still not flying. They have a mile, you know. Um, so I think it's um, so variable. Again, there's always so many variables that um, I, I think the most important thing that any hunter, any bird hunter can do in general, any grouse hunter can do especially it's just not assume that you, you know, what's what, you know, and I, yeah. I kind of, I always predefine my hunt areas and that, that has a tremendous influence on, on hunting outcome. Um, but you know, I say, okay, this is the habitat, you know, for this area. And then I draw a line like in my mind or on my map, like bigger than that. And I, you know, if we're talking covers that get less pressure, like I know what, I know how many birds should be in there, you know, and sometimes I go, an hour and a half and I don't find anything. I'm like, man, I know there's eight birds in here. And then lo and behold, eight of them are all together that day. Yeah, you know, yeah. like it, and it's, I mean, that, that doesn't happen like half time. That happens like 80% of the time. Like they're always somewhere, you know, that's the thing, you know, they're always somewhere. Now maybe they're 40 feet up in a tree and there's a steady wind that day and the dogs just aren't going to find them, you know? But they're always somewhere. Well, and, the, you know, the fear the fear is that they're gone, and I think that's the the conclusion yeah. that we sometimes jump to, right? That like we walk through a cover, and well, shoot, if they were here, we would have found them, or me and the dogs would have mm-hmm. found them. So, you know, they must yeah. have been wiped out by disease, or it was a bad hatch yeah. or something. But as we, if we sort of like hit at a million times, like there's just so many variables to like draw yeah. that sort of a concrete yeah. conclusion. <laughs> And you go, you know, I mean, you know, every serious grouse hunter has, you know, higher pressure covers that they hunt and yep. lower pressure covers that they hunt, right? So there's places here. I mean, uh, unfortunately, I, I'm always a whiner, you know, about how high pressure uh, where I'd be in a different spot if, if I <laughs> yeah, if yeah. I knew if I knew now then kind of thing I, I'd be in a different spot. But there's birds, you know, and uh, and they don't kill them all. But you know, you go into a cover that's a great cover, and there's birds in there. And for the month of October, all day long, there's going to be a pickup truck parked in that spot, you know, um, and you just kind of wait your turn for the, you know, the mall parking to, to, you know, get open to give it a shot, you know, and you can go in there and, you know, birds get moved around all the time, you know, in yep. and out of those covers. And it's just when you hit it and you hope that they're there, but interestingly, and, and I've, you know, I've, I've done it every way that I, I feel is humanly possible with hitting like my, my covers that I know, like. I only have access to, you know, those, those, those covers that you hop on the quad and you, you know, you go many, many miles, you know, to where you, you're, you're trying to get lost, you know, and, um, you pray that your, your backup GPS battery does not fail you, you know? (laughs) Um, so those kind of covers, you know, that, that I try real hard to, to, to find again, I, I kind of know the inventory, so to speak of the, the birds in there after you hunted a few times. And you know, kind of know generally what's most likely being harvested amongst humans, anyway. So you know, when I when I look at those types of places, you just know you know a little bit more what to expect, and you you learn from you can learn from that more. And one of the things that's interesting, right? So you find a honey hole, right? You know, so whatever you find ten or twenty birds in an hour. You know, every grouse hunter's dream. You know, so you you go in there. I didn't harvest anything. All I got is some empty shells and a dog shaking his head, right? So, well, what the heck? You know, I I haven't killed any birds in there. It's a really cool new spot. You know, I'm going to go back in there tomorrow, right? So you go back there tomorrow, right? And what what invariably happens? You know, you find half as many birds, you know? 
and you still miss them. Well, you know what? It just to satisfy my curiosity, I'm not going back there because I can find lots of covers that have one to three birds in it. Yeah. <laughs> you know, but let me go back a third day in a row and see what I find. And I find the same number of birds I found the second day or less, you know, this is particularly true. You know, I, I think in, um, uh, you know, once the leaves are down and stuff, you know, they just, they feel even more vulnerable and they're, and they're just more educated too later in the season. But, um, you know, what, what does that tell me? And, and all my private land covers back East, you know, and a lot of my hunting was on private land, um, back East in New York. And, uh, you know, I always kind of try to let a cover, quote unquote cool down mm-hmm. for at least four days to seven days you know so so that's that's generally and if i'm and if i'm not letting it cool down it's probably because i just saw a boatload of birds in there and i didn't take any you know so i figured you know i should still find a my above average whatever my flush rate average is you know my my above average flush rate there i feel if i go back there again the second day yeah and that doesn't always happen by any means but but yeah like Typically, you know, in your less pressured areas, I, I think a, a four to seven day cool down does does you a lot of favors in terms of putting yourself in a better position to succeed. You know, the next time you go in there to have the birds kind of move back into their areas. And then when you have all this contiguous habitat in your higher pressure areas, you know, again, the birds are just moving. It's just a matter of, yeah. you know, right place, right time. Um, but with your less pressured covers, it's not as much about right place, right time. It's just be smart and don't go back there for a week, you know, and that, that there, there are differences there and those, and the birds, the birds respond to predatorial pressure, you know? Um, so, uh, that, and because of those variables and there's so many, when we start talking hunting pressure, um, and where that hunting pressure is, you know, you know, you just have to take your cover and cover it the the way that you feel is going to be most effective and hope that, you know, birds are in there at that time. I remember reading an article in within the last years in Gundog Magazine. Um, it was a, by a, a UP guy, Dennis Aquex, Aspen Thicket Grouse Dogs. He wrote about sort of the the tendency of folks to kind of overlook the impacts of pressure and that birds, you know, here's the prime age Aspen cut that's right off the side of the road and there should be birds in there, but they're not. Well, they're, he gave some examples of like, a, I think it was a cedar swamp or something where they just all got pushed back in there. And yeah, I think that, that happened. I mean, these birds are escaping. They're escaping from things aside from us and our dogs every single day. And yeah, it would be, it would be silly to think that they're not going to respond to sort of like an influx of pressure or an increase in pressure in certain areas. And like you're pointing out here, you know, the ideal scenario is that you have lots of contiguous habitat. So the birds can move and adapt and not be more vulnerable by being pushed out of uh, a pocket cover or something. Yeah. I mean, my, I I think just on a survival of the species note, you know, I mean, (laughs) you know, yeah, drummers have territories, obviously we all know that, but, um, I think, uh, a drummer that's that uh, is pointed by six different dogs, <laughs> seven different hunters in a single day, every day in the month of October. I think his attitude at some point becomes like, "I'd rather live to fight another day with yeah. another drummer over whose stump this is." You know, <laughs> I mean, you know, there again, you know, we brag so much about how this is the king of all game birds. Right. Give it a little credit, you know. <laughs> um, every bird's just trying to survive, you know, and part of surviving, you know, might having to be leave there little you know five acre by five acre you know or or quarter mile by quarter mile area 
you know, because the Orange Army is, is upon them. And they're just, I think they're smart enough to do that. And when they have the habitat to do it, they do it. I mean, the, the birds back east are smart enough to literally fly to another mountain. <laughs> and then, again, give them a week and they're back to that same apple tree, you yeah. know. But they're literally, you know, smart enough to fly that far because they know you ain't following them, <laughs> you know. So uh, I, I just, I think these birds here are literally smart enough to keep running as long as they have aspen conifers hazel and alders you know i i, I just uh it, it would be nonsensical not to and again yeah if you know i'm a guy that uh depending upon at what point in the hunt we're at you know i may or may not follow up on a on a flush that i didn't shoot at you know but uh yeah. uh you know if it's if it's the if it's the latter part of the hunt i'm following up Obviously, anytime I shoot, I'm following up. And then okay, you get into yeah. these scenarios, you know, where I shoot, I miss. Well, a guy goes, I, th- I should say I shoot, I think I missed, you know, but right. I always follow up, right. you know. I go up there again, dog points the bird again. Bird flushes, I shoot, I miss again. <laughs> well, I shot, so I'm going to follow the bird again, right? I, you know, I'm, I'm going to make sure that there's not a dead bird there. Yeah. So, you know, I get up there and usually the third time that happens, dog goes palm point. I don't pull the trigger. I just see, yep, he got up no problem. I didn't hit him either time, you know, and I let him go, you know. But in that scenario where it's two or three flushes, you'll, it's very common to see that bird again, like triangulate his escape, you know, like, mm-hmm. you yeah, know, so they, you're paying attention not, where he went in those two, yeah, obviously. It, yeah. You're, yeah, if you look at your GPS, it's often, you know, not on a straight line, you know, when they, when they do that kind of stuff. But, you know, eventually, they do that. And, you know, as I like to say, they often bring you to their friends, you know? So, yeah. you know, all of a sudden, you know, how often have you followed up on a bird that you missed? Or again, it was the latter part of your hunt. And so you followed up on that flush and all of a sudden, you know, within 10 minutes, you, you got multiple flushes going on, you know? And, and, uh, you know, there's, there's reasons for that. It's because birds and what, what we're calling a cover, you know, they're, 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 they're neighboring cover there, so to speak, they're all mingling, they're all going back and forth. And, I, I just think I think these birds do move a lot more um, when they're pressured here because they can, you know. Yeah, yeah. So circling back to the open cover thing, going back to this this day that I was out with Rose on December fourteenth. The it's funny. The basically we went through some some good areas. Like I mentioned, there are these swamps and drainages, and they have these sort of perennial. They just are always going to hold birds because the cover really doesn't change. It's alder and stuff. But yeah. outside of that, I mean, I'm walking through like 40, 50 year old Aspen and there's, I mean, it's wide open in many places. There's some little tufts of swamp grass and that's the kind of stuff you're keying in on, but there's just enough hazel brush and obviously the mature Aspen. But so it's like, you know, the food is there and you know, I'm just, I'm kind of just making a big hike, making a big loop. There's some area. I know I'm going to be in some good spots and in some quote unquote, less than desirable spots, but you're always in the back of your mind i could flush a grouse anywhere because i'm in grouse cover right i'm in the woods yeah. and the first contact we had i was it was had to have been well over an hour into the hunt we were going and we hadn't seen anything and there was an i'm way back in the woods and there was an orange thing hanging on a tree so something odd i had seen a deer stand so somebody hiked way back there set up a cool little bow stand and i see this orange thing and i'm walking up and looking at this thing i don't know what it is and i still don't know what it is because Right as I got to it, I, I'm, bl- I'm fogging up a little bit on the sequence of events. I don't remember if Rose's bell stopped or something, but something made me look to my left just as I arrived to this foreign object hanging in this tree. And I look over and I immediately spot a grouse probably 15 yards away from me 
sitting on the ground in the wide open. And I, I have, <laughs> I have this on video. I'll have to send you this. I didn't send it to you ahead of time, but so then Rose, I think she's moving or coming in. And I, I remember I said, Whoa, and she stopped. So I kind of woed her into this point. And then we've got the girls triangulated and I, I've got gun up ready and I just start walking towards the bird and I take three or four steps and it flushes and doesn't get very far on it. I dropped it. But again, it was like as wide open of a cross shot as you could get apart from a few 40 year old Aspen trees that I, that were, you know, speckled around, but I don't know, you never know. And, And sometimes I like to, again, I like to hunt those spots because you get unique quality opportunities. Yeah. Well, you know, uh, hunt strategy, habitat choice, all that mm. stuff. Obviously that, that could be a 10 hour conversation, yeah. you know? Yep. Um, but yeah, like I said, I, I tend to, i tend to always go for the thick stuff first. I mean, while I, I kill my fair share of birds, um, for me, it's, you know, how many grouse can I get this dog on, sure. you know, in the next 60 to 90 minutes kind of thing, you know? And, and so I, I go in the stuff that, you know, again, cuss and cover. Um, so, we're in there in the thick stuff, you know, I can be on my hands and knees. I can be, you know, plowing to dogs backwards, using my back as a shield, you know, so I don't poke my eyeballs out while I'm getting to the dog. And, and when I don't find them there, you know, again, you know, there's, there's, you never have to go terribly far to get to more good cover. You know, I don't, I don't skip over what we would generally view as more marginal cover. I, I work that cover with the dog and you might, you might walk, you're just naturally moving faster through it. Right. Cause it's not as hard to move through, but you're not skipping uh, over. Well, it. yeah, I might move through it faster right. as, as thorough, but I move through it faster. And, um, again, it's very common that if they weren't in the thick, nasty stuff that they are, some of them are sprinkled in the more marginal stuff yeah. going from one good place to another good place. And I just, uh, you know, uh, makes me think of a, uh, time in search and rescue. We were in the Adirondacks and the forest ranger was incident commander on a search. And so we had six dog teams in New York at the time that I was, uh, in SAR. And of course, you know, you, you train really hard for this. And this is like the moment that you want to, you know, be a part of, you know, are these searches. So there was this, um, uh, guy that had a camp. He was a big fisherman. He's way up on these mountain streams. He hadn't been heard from in a few days. You know, but he was an outdoorsman, you know, so, but he was like 70 or something like that. So, you know, they assume he had some kind of, you know, health related thing that happened to him. And so, you know, immediately we, we're talking about, you know, we talk about quality habitat for birds. Well, in, um, in, uh, search and rescue, we'll, we'll, you know, we'll call it higher probability detection areas, right? So you might draw this giant circle, right? Around from his last known point, in this case, like where his car was. You know, and so, you know, you have these areas that you assume are going to be, you know, higher probability where you're going to find the guy. Well, of course, every dog team is like, oh, ooh, ooh, I, I hope I, get, I put in there, put in there. And then they kind of start to argue like, you know, well, what's a, what's the higher probability area? And so you hear all this chatter in the in the firehouse where incident command is. And this old timer forest ranger remember, he said, all right, who knows where the victim is? And it was like dead silence, right? Because obviously we wouldn't have this thing going on if we knew where the person was, right? So, so that got everybody to shut up and pay attention to this guy, you know. And he assigned everybody the areas, you know, and 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 so it went. Um, that's the thing with with hunting is is again, you know, you don't know where the yeah. birds are, and I mean, even in the lake states, if you get late season and stuff, I mean, sometimes birds, you know, not not often, but I have visibly seen birds ahead get up off the side of an aspen stand 
and fly a couple hundred yards into more marginal cover, what we're going to call marginal cover, or another Aspen stand or the Connors, but they'll fly 200 yards, mm-hmm. you know. Well, if they'll fly that far, they'll certainly walk a lot further than that, you yeah. know. So if they're not pressured and stuff, they're not going to voluntarily fly like that unless they're like going up into the trees to roost or the bud, you know. Just, they just don't, they don't make themselves that vulnerable, you know, like right. that. Spend so, that kind of energy for no reason. Yeah. I mean, my one, 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 one quick grouse story, you know, that I, that I had, uh, I was with my dog Omimi and this was right near my camp property, uh, years ago. And, uh, as a commercial forest piece. And so I, I never really found a lot of birds there, but just always enough birds to go back and not a lot of people would hunt it. So anyway, so I had this trail, I walked down and I worked through this area off the side of the trail. Well, we got to this point where the dog was on point and she was pointing one of those situations. She was, she's a tracker and she locked down tight and she was actually on the trail and she was, uh, uh, facing the, what turned out to be the opposite direction of the birds at the time. But this wind picked up. Uh, and, uh, so she was facing the wooded direction where her butt was facing on the other side of the trail was this, um, privately owned but in commercial forest it was like this big food plot like this alfalfa type grassy area and when i say grassy area, i'm talking several acres right so um and it was like at sunset like if i looked in that direction like the sun was just burning through my eyes yeah um so but this breeze picked all of a sudden and omi turned her head back towards her rear end and her eyes were bugging out of her head like this was like yeah i you know i've never hunted covey birds other than you know when our grouse are coveyed up but you know if if there was uh those uh infamous uh you know you know dog goes on point and 100 pheasants go up i would imagine this is what the eyes would look like on yeah, that dog i'm know? envisioning it uh i think it was covey <laughs> covey rise magazine you probably saw where there was a setter where his eyes were like super wide open yeah yeah yeah, yeah. so this was my dog and she's got bug eyes to begin with so <laughs> so she's so she's looking back into the sun into the several acre field and as I turn, because I'm taking her cue, as I turn, I look and I can see like the casting shadows. And this grass is not tall at all. I can see the casting shadows of what was at least 15 to 20 grouse. Come on. Slowly, just like tiptoeing, quietly, hoping that I – and, there, and oh, once you got uh, on the other side of this several-acre field – was like an embankment that went back down into aspen and alders and she was pointing what was beautiful grouse habitat the direction that her body was facing but when that wind picked up and she caught them that way because she was pointing the trail scent and then the wind picked up and then she got a mega scent cone dose as i turned my right shoulder in the direction of the sun and stuff the field just erupted with grouse i can not imagine what that would have looked and and sounded like (laughs) <laughs> yeah, it was it was uh, one of the I got goosebumps talking about because it, it was one of the coolest one of the coolest uh, grouse flush moments that I that I've ever seen and I've yeah. had I've had multiple experiences like that over the years where they've coveyed up it's a little bit later in October you know um, and they get into these these giant fields that on the periphery is good cover but they're in the they're in the field mm-hmm. um yep. you know and you know it's one of those things where like the dog goes on point the dog stopped the bird sense of vibration whatnot you know they know they've been had you know some of the old time birds in there they're like all right we're getting out of here and you just start seeing flushing like singles one at a time one after the other and you're like you know 50 to 100 yards away and there's no way you're going to – so you just stand there and watch it happen, you know. But it, it happens, and it, it happens often enough to 
if they're not where you think they should be, then then they're definitely where you don't think they should be. You yeah. know. Gearing up for your next hunt? Check out Ugly Dog Hunting Company for all your dog supply needs. Ugly Dog Hunting carries a full line of products for your bird dog and even some for you. Whether you're looking for dog collars, GPS tracking devices, kennels, beds, leads, training equipment, or first aid supplies, Ugly Dog Hunting carries it and a whole lot more. New owner of the company and friend of the Bird Shop podcast, Mike Nadusky, loves to remind me that while I do hunt with pretty dogs, every dog can be an ugly dog. Check out the entire selection of gear for you and your bird dog at UglyDogHunting.com. For many upland hunters, along with their passion for dogs, birds, and the places we chase them, comes a passion for shotguns. Upland Gun Company specializes in customizing shotguns for the upland bird hunter imported from Italy and shipped direct to an FFL near you. Select from one of their side-by-side or over-under shotgun platforms and customize the fit, function, and aesthetics to your liking. Design and build your next upland hunting shotgun with Upland Gun Company today. Visit uplandguncompany.com. I had a, a former coworker of mine last year had an experience like that. He was hunting. He He's not a – he's an avid outdoorsman, more of a deer hunter, but he got his first bird dog, and so he's been obviously chasing more grouse now. And he, he I'd never been to this spot, but he the way he described it, he was kind of working these alder drainages because he and I had talked about areas that he might target. And he exp- – described a very similar thing where he got on the edge of these alders and it was just swamp grass. And he, I mean, he didn't give me an exact number and I don't know, I haven't hunted with him enough to know if there's any exaggeration in his tails, but the amount of grouse that he said started popping out of that grass were just like crazy. And so I, yeah, I, I don't think I've ever experienced anything quite like that, but you read about, yeah. you re, I, I know I've read about very large groups of grouse. I know, I'm pretty sure it was Spiller that wrote about this more in the New England side of things. And I don't know if you have any experience of this back at East of like these very large groups of grouse, you know, 20, 30, 40. I don't think I've ever seen anything like that. Have you? I haven't seen that big. I have seen, I mean, New York, we just, <laughs> we just don't have those kinds of numbers yeah. anymore, but I can tell you on private land that, you know, you get permission to hunt where nobody else is hunting it. You know, and again, you have these perennial, you know, forever timeless types of covers mm-hmm. that are just the hawthorns, the orchards, the dogwood tangles, you know, uh, you know, mixed age poplar and 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 uh, conifers that aren't being cut, but blow down and stuff over time. It's just always it's always going to be good. And when there's and you find those types of farms and properties that, again, don't get hunted, you know, pressure. Yeah, it's amazing. You can, you still have eight to 10 birds an hour kind of thing, yeah. uh, in these, in these places in a state that is known for having one to two birds an hour, you know, but, uh, you know, certainly New York, I mean, everywhere, but New York is super, super cyclical, you know, I mean, years on the sixes there are years were my, always my best years. And I mean, I'm not old, I'm in my early forties, you know, but, uh, you know, I, I've been hunting grouse like a maniac since I was 10. And, uh, you know, I, I've had, I've had, you know, several cycles that I've lived through and certainly, uh, on, on my aunt's farm, you know, that's great grouse habitat. And then I cut my teeth on grouse and stuff. And over the years and, and knowing like, I'm the only one shooting birds on there for 30 years, you know? <laughs> um, so, uh, or hunting them I, those early days, I certainly weren't killing many. I would still say that, you know, like 2016, was the best grouse numbered year, you know, that I ever had in New York state. Hmm. It, it, you know, it, it wasn't, you know, uh, 1996, you know, it was 2016, you know, by far, you know, so 
I think, um, do you think we talk about variables a lot? There are just things that we cannot control for, but obviously 96 to 06 to 16, you've got 20 more years of experience. And in theory, you've honed your craft. And I, I know that you're smart enough to know, like you're kind of accounting for that when you're telling me this, but do you think that, that it was just like not much of a factor at all that you had more covers I, well, I don't and were better and your f- dogs were better. I don't think it's a, yeah, I don't think it's that much of a, f- I mean, all those things are, are certainly true yeah. for, for all of us hunters, you know, but I don't think that's the case at all. Yeah. Um, I, I think, I think that again, these pocket covers, like you start talking a pocket cover in New York can be five acres. It could be 40 acres, you know, but you know, most, most grouse hunters, when they go, when they go grouse hunting for the day, you know, uh, in new England, they're in and out of their car, like three to five times, you know, with their one dog, you know? So, um, that's, that's pretty normal because there's always going to be a bird or two here. There's always going to be, you know, two or three birds here, you know, until somebody kills it, you know, and that's generally how it goes. So it's not like, again, it's not like here, here you need to be, I think there's uh, a lot to be, Every hunter learns more. Every hunter gains experience. Every hunter becomes a better hunter. We hope, you know, with more seasons gone past. Yeah. Um, but uh, I, having never hunted the Lake States until ten years ago, and hunting all over the East Coast, you know, my whole life, and a lot of New York, obviously. While it was different, you know, it was definitely, um, uh, you know, applying what I know and learning a lot more about about, uh, you know the difference between a pocket cover and contiguous habitat. Yeah. And there's massive differences and there's differences in how the birds behave. So, you know, uh, it's just, uh, it's a different type of thing, but I think, I think a 2016 year, you know, I'm talking literally like the bird numbers are two to three times sure. what they were. It's not like, you know, so it's just, it's, it's, it's different, but again, you go to the W the WMAs, you know, in New York and it's ghost town, you know, a lot of the times because it's where every, but he goes it's where they know that there's habitat but there's the classic issues you know yes there is dwindling habitat i mean there are habitats that are aging out there are all these old conifer plantations you know tamarack plantations and and uh, spruce plantations and pine plantations that were planted you know 100 years ago 120 years ago and these trees are just rotting you know and and uh birds don't use them like they used to you know for for cover and stuff and and that's uh you know that that's definitely problematic but there are there is regeneration under there you know that's coming through you know just naturally that it just it takes it takes till our grandkids lifetime for them to benefit from it god willing it's still there you know so yeah it's just it's just different you know different different habitat different environment but cycles of bird numbers make differences but i have seen I have seen uh, uh, some nice clusters of 10 to 15 birds in, in New York. It's the exception, not the rule. But in peak years, you know, in early season, and you find a couple coveys that end up getting together, um, yeah, you know, it's, uh, it's, it's, pretty, it's pretty wild. But nothing here. I mean, I've heard stories here from locals uh, in not too far years past, you know, in areas to not be named that, uh, <laughs> you know, are, um, you know, where, yeah, they step out of their they step out of their truck, you know, these old timers, you know, with the, their shotgun, you know, they're going to shoot the road bird and the bird, you know, walks into the woods and then it, it takes off. And then, you know, they tell me 40, 50 birds, you know, erupt like into the darkness, you know, like just, just before dark, you know, as they're crossing through 
hardwoods that that have been semi-logged so you know selectively logged so there's lots of raspberry undergrowth in there you yeah. know but it's like you know just just before dark and they're they can pull out the, to shoot this one road bird and it's just like again it just makes 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 the sky in front of them go black with with birds i i have not been blessed with that experience at all but but they they will group up and i have seen in september um i have seen clusters of 20 or 30 in september of young broods that all hmm. con- congregate together uh, i'll never forget this time uh where i was pretty far uh uh west of where i am and I was uh, uh, working the dogs. I don't know. This was maybe a week before opening opening day here, and three th- three years ago, I think. Dog goes on point, and there's this balsam that doesn't have a branch. It's not a super tall tree. It's it's maybe I don't know thirty, not even thirty feet tall, but it didn't have any limbs, nothing on it for like at least ten or twelve feet. And then it was all thick and dense going up the rest of the tree. And so the dog's on point, and I'm like this looking around right and nothing all of a sudden they just start like two and three at a time they start rocking out of this rocketing out of the street they were like 20 plus birds in the single tree and there are a lot of young ones you know yeah. um, but there was you know that wasn't one brood obviously right. you know there must have been multiple broods grouped up you know uh in uh, early september together but it was just like okay that was new you know um so yeah it's uh you know, just expect the unexpected and right. don't put into your don't don't put into your head that you think, you know, where the bird is, how many birds there are. You know, um, you're only limiting you and your dogs, you know, hunting opportunities um, by by doing so. And I just plenty of days that. Yep. That was as bad as, you know, everybody thought it was going to be. Yeah. <laughs> you know, And <laughs> and uh, but it happens enough. And I just my ad, again, my attitude is, uh, you know. It's hunting, and sometimes yeah. you strike out, and sometimes you hit a home run. And the more knowledge you gain through your experience and being around good people and mentors, you know, you you uh, start to just those hourly flush rates uh, get up to whatever the maximum they can get up to, you know. And that's uh, that's the name of the game. But I think uh, you know, kind of piggybacking on that, you know, going into a, a subject that to to um, further talk about some of the the specifics in your video, I think, you know, just to talk leading into that, talking about like approaching dogs on point, Yeah, you know, grouse hunting is as simple or as complicated as you want to make it. Sure. Right. You know, so if you just want to, we tend to make it real complicated on this podcast sometimes. (laughs) (laughs) Well, you know, um, it's fun though. (laughs) Or at least for me it is. (laughs) Nobody's disagree that, that I'm, you know, I'm certainly the TMI guy. Um, but, (laughs) but, uh, you know, it's, uh, it's what you want to make it, you know? So, you want to throw a bell on your dog and just follow your dog and make sure that it comes when called and go to the birds at a points and step up there and shoot at what flies. There's nothing wrong with that. Go for it. Yeah. Um, it's as soon as you start to ask, well, what do you think about this? And what mm-hmm. do you think about that? And what's the habitat? And well, how's that dog really handling? Is he working for you? Is he working for himself? Can, can he handle better? Well, as soon as you start to answer all these questions, well, now it's become complicated, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> you know? Yep. So you know, on, on the note of, of those nuances, I, I think, um, you know, ha- knowing how that particular dog that you got on the ground works a bird coupled with the type of habitat, you know, matters. And that's everything that we're kind of just talking about. And that plays into how, how you might approach a, how you approach a, a, a dog. And, but you got to know that dog. I mean, you know, for me, I mean, my, my, my breeding quality dogs are dogs that wildly vary presentation on their point based on the scent picture, you know? So, if I got a dog 
you know, all my dogs, true dogs and trackers that I have here, they'll stand with, you know, high on both ends, 12 o'clock tails, you know, and they'll all sit flat on the ground. And they do that according to proximity to the bird, you know, and that's telling to me. And as a grouse hunter, particularly, I, I like that. Uh, you know, it, it kind of gives me, it gives me intel to know whether I got to be tripping over myself to get up there or not, you know, and sometimes they'll be standing high on both ends and they got the bird in the scent cone, but it is that, you know, as we mentioned earlier in terms of scent cone distances and stuff, it might be that 15 plus yards away, you know, and they're standing like that, you know, or it's a, a very old track. If it's a tracker, you know, and they're standing tall and I get up there. And as we get up that track to the hotter tracks and getting close to that bird and, and multiple points, those points turn into sets, you know, and yeah, the, the profile gotcha. of the dog gets lower and lower. And, and that starts to tell me, you know, when I'm approaching the dog and getting ahead of the dog, we'll say with the trackers, you know, it tells me when I got to start to choose my shooting lanes, you know, and again, I like to be in the thick stuff and there's not really many shooting lanes. And, you know, the first time we had chatted, I mentioned again, our buddy Mike and, you know, the uh, hunt this year that I was on with him and our classic thick cover that, that I like to hunt. And, you know, dog was tracking point, stop, point, stop, point, stop set, you know, and I just like skidded on both knees, like, you know, 10 feet in front of the dog and the bird went up and I shot it from both knees. Like that's something I do like probably 10 to 20% of the time in terms of the cover <laughs> that I choose to hunt. Um, but I only did that because the dog hit the deck in a manner that I knew that that was, you know, likely to happen. Yeah. You know, um, if the dog was standing tall on both ends, I wouldn't have done that. So for me, you know, my dogs and how they work and how I, I, I select for dogs that work like that, they give me intel. You know, just for me personally, um, you know, a dog on point, obviously a bird that is a dog that's in scent and it might have that bird in a scent cone. But um, whether that dog is, uh, you know, and this might even serve better example in the you know in the prairie um but you know certainly in the woods um you know if a dog's gonna be pointing tall five yards and 20 15 to 20 yards off the bird and its presentation looks the same that's not the intel stops the fact that the dog is smelling a bird. yeah you're not getting you know? additional input yeah, yeah i can yeah, yeah. I can and when you're in that. thick cover when you're in thick cover that matters you know you're more open cover it's not as big of a deal mm-hmm. depending upon what chokes you got and what kind of gun you got you know you, you know you can drop a bird at 45 yards you know it just depends on it depends on those variables but when you're hunting some classic thick grouse cover those things can matter and and the language that the dog is sharing with you can mean a lot but if you're so if you're coming up from behind a dog whether it's a true dog or a tracker you know say say your dog's on point ahead of you and or dog's on point and so you just you look at your gps your phone your beeper your bell last that you heard whatever your method is and you're going in that direction towards the dog and when you see your dog you're behind your dog you know I just get up to the dog. If there's one thing that I would tell everybody is just get to the dog. Just get get to the dog. You know, um, if you're behind the dog, particularly, I don't loop out around. And tr- I don't try to do a semicircle and hook mm-hmm. out around in front of the dog. Um, I try to get up to the dog, and then I'll get in front of the dog. And then I, I'm I'm always thinking again, max like 15 yards if it's a scent cone kind of thing. Um, so you know, I'm looking at habitat where they might have ran to, where they might be tucked down, that kind of thing, and I hedge my bets and roll my dice and, and go in that direction. Sometimes I'm right. Sometimes I'm wrong. And if I can't produce that flush, will the, the dog either will do his own thing or her own thing and, and advance ahead naturally, you know, or I'll tell him to get ahead if I can't produce that flush. But the other thing is, uh, you know, coming upon any other angle and assessing again, I I'm always thinking like in that 15 yard range, you know, max kind of thing. 
um, I'm assessing habitat and stuff as I'm going towards the dog that way, but I'm getting to the dog. I'm not seeing my dog. I'm, I come and, oh, there's my dog. I see my dog on point over there. I'm not immediately myself. I'm not one to like loop around, you know, and try to try to get and walk towards the dog that way from a different angle. Yeah. I, I just have, I don't know where that bird is. And I know that if it's a scent comb scenario, it's probably within 15 yards. I will approach the dog going towards maybe what's better covered in hopes that I'll flush it right away. But um, I'm going towards that dog. And when I get to the dog, then I'll work out from the dog, you know, and all this happens in real time, obviously very quickly. And, uh, you know, I feel that I burn myself more times than not by not going to the dog, you know, uh, you know, every single season, multiple times a season, I'm biting my bottom lip saying, Oh, <laughs> dummy. I should have went to the dog, you know, like, you know, it, it, it happens, you know, oh, so often because sometimes, I mean, as I'm sure you've experienced, uh, you know, these birds know when to go and know when to stay. Right. Yep. You know, sometimes the dog is right on top of the bird. Yep. You know, it was a it was a scent trap kind of situation and the scent wasn't available until the dog got within, you know, literally, you know, feet or just a few yards of that bird. And they're tucked in that tiny, tight little, you know, balsam or spruce that's grown up on the side of the logging trail, you know, or um, they just got wedged in underneath that stump or in a stone wall. And, and, you know, they're just hoping that the storm passes. Um, and that and that happens, too. But I always go to the dog first and then I go out. But once um, you're at the dog and you assess that habitat and you know how that dog works birds, um, and you're taking into account, you know, shot opportunities, like if you're on the edge of something or you're looking or if you're in really thick cover and you got to, again, look for like your holes, you know, where's the bird going to, if bird's not going to, most birds, they try to avoid struggling flight through mm-hmm. the hazel and the alders and the dogwood tangles, you know, they, they're, they're hoping that they can run to where they got a good launching place, you yeah. know? Yep. So you're assessing all that, you know, once, once you get to the dog and again, these, these are split second decisions yeah, that you make. There's a lot of real time computing going on. So, well, yeah. Yeah. But you, again, you had your bets. And yep. again, we, we all have to keep an open mind. We don't know where the bird is because uh, again, they, they continually show us, you know, how, how we don't know where they are. But yeah. I think that, so taking all that information in terms of the general approach that, that I like to take um, of just getting to the dog you know, categorically, we can label the types of trackers and trues. And I think uh, maybe I'll mention that I'll cruise through the trackers quick and then we can go on the trues and, and you can kind of tell us about these videos that yeah. try to paint a picture for your audience. But so the trackers, I would I would say um, yeah, there's four types of trackers, you know, and like every type of bird dog, every breed, you know, there's good ones and there's bad ones. Each type that I'm going to describe within these, each of these four types of trackers that I'll label them as have different degrees of caution. So I kind of break them down into like, we'll say slow, moderate, fast, and single stop trackers, you know. So each of those labels, you know, we'll say could have, you know, dogs that have no caution. Like there's slow trackers that just don't have caution. They just don't stop, you know, <laughs> and, and, uh, and they'll, and they'll bump birds, you know? Um, so to, to try to separate, that, try to separate there. When you say that you say slow tracker, but he's not stopping. So are, are they, are they moving with a very slow pace, just moving along yes, the track? You can, have, you can have a slow pace. You can have a slow pace. Now often, you know, slow tracker is coupled with a lot of caution, but I'm just highlighting like what, what the bad slow tracker gotcha, dog gotcha, is, right? You know, okay. but let's, so, so for, for the sake of time, let's just talk about the, all the good trackers. Sure. Sure. Yeah. The ideal <laughs> um, ones, you know, 
Yeah. So, uh, you know, your, your, your slow, your slow tracking dog is going to be a dog that after the first point is going to move with you at your pace, you know? So, uh, my dog Missy is, is that dog, you know? Um, and I have a couple others, but she's the, she's my slowest tracker, you know? And I, I had mentioned her earlier in this conversation about, you know, she's my least productive grouse dog in relationship to number of points per flushes created because she's slow moving. She is mega cautious. She has a very cold nose. Um, so the best way to work that dog is, you know, for me to challenge her pace by, you know, I'm basically in the heel. Once she gets a point, I go ahead of her. And um, uh, what'll happen is, you know, she'll, I'll get ahead of her and, and I'm starting to go fast. And so she's staying right there with me, you know, and I'm almost just watching the head move it side to side. And that's the best way to work those, those slow trackers, um, but but they're slow. You know, they're going to have a lot of points per flush. Yeah. Um, then there's the moderate pace trackers, we'll say, which is kind of like, you know, the the biggest group of, of tracking dogs, where after the first point, there's the classic leapfrogging that occurs, where that dog is going to go 20 or 30, 20-30-yard jumps at kind of like an even pace. You'll get ahead of that dog, you know, maybe 20-30 yards. If you don't produce a flush, then that's when that dog moves up, or that's when you call that dog up, and you just keep leapfrogging in that kind of yeah. rhythm. And yeah. until, obviously, again, we, we, we get to that bird. Um, and then uh, there's, uh, you know, a third kind that, uh, we'll call fast trackers. And to me, in my mind, this is, would be, you know, so if there was, there are tracking dog championships, you know, this would be the, this would be the dog that, that, uh, would, would probably, you know, win those tracking dog trial championships, uh, in that, you know, these dogs go on point, their first point after their first point, they're flying up usually, you know, 30, 40 yard jumps and that amount of time lapses, where these dogs they're like it's like they have time to calculate like how cold that trail is so they know how far they can charge ahead on that trail and stop and not and apply the appropriate amount of pressure to the bird for you to get there and and be able to to have an opportunity uh so you know you get up to these dogs and as soon as you get up to them if there's not a bird there that they have the moment you get up to them boom, they're moving ahead they're just waiting you know? for you and yeah yeah they're just waiting for you because they're hunting for the gun. These yeah. are these are in my mind. These are dogs that hunt for the gun. So so those to me are the ideal type trackers. Now understand that uh, statistically speaking, when we talk about setters, again, there's good and bad, slow, moderate, and fast tracking dogs. You know, but statistically speaking, these are how your these are how all regardless of breed, all your better tracking style dogs will work running birds. But you, I do see across the board these types of tracking dogs that are stopping and, you know, as I like to say, hunting for the gun and waiting for the human and including the human in their hunt, you find a higher percentage of them in setters than you do your versatile breeds. And again, you know, you mentioned about, you know, probably the hound influence, you know, has something to do with that, you know, once, once they start to get into, you know, tracking mode. So that the fourth type one, you know, I kind of generally call like a single stop tracker. These are the dogs that will get on a trail, not point, or sometimes they will, but often they don't. They get a, they pick up a trail. There might be no point, and they don't stop and point until they arrive at the bird. Hmm. You know, which, so which that's could like be that's like your buddy's French Brittany that we talked about, right? Exactly, yeah. exactly. Okay. So th- that requires a much more independence, which again, versatile breeds can have once sure. they get into that tracking mode. But there's again, I've seen plenty of short hairs that will stop and go, stop and go. But for the most part, that's to me that's the beauty of a setter as a tracking dog is that you know the good ones and pretty good numbers percentage-wise, will wait for you. And the ones that don't, but it's in them genetically, you know, that way, 
it's super easy to cultivate. And I would say uh, when I hunt with some of my pups, you know, that, that people have and stuff, that's always their aha moment, you know, uh, when we're when I'm working with them. It's like, uh, there's, I was like, there's a tracking dog. It, tracking is not more complicated for a tracking dog because that's who they are. Tracking is more complicated for the handler. All right. Sure. You know, so, so that that's where it's more complicated. And it's not really that complicated, but it just usually needs to be explained to you because it's something different than something as simple as a scent cone. Thing, you yeah. know, so. But yeah, the tracking dog is not complicated for the tracking dog to track. You know, it's just a matter of, you know, maybe you got to instill some breaks in that dog with having an easy command in there. Um, but the, the language is simple. It's just so vastly different than, than your dog that's only pointing scent cones that it usually needs to be explained to somebody that hasn't effectively, you know, uh, been worked with them. And then once it is, it's, again, for me, uh, I love my true dogs. They're great, but I, I harvest many more birds over my trackers because of the interaction throughout the whole hunt. But, uh, you know, I mentioned this whole um, after the first point and then I say something different. You know, that instinctive caution plays such a huge part in the individual dog. And when it, you know, um, and the ones that lack that, you know, you must know how to navigate that. And that's where that's where training can can help uh the dogs that are you know less cautious of course yeah you know but at, at that first all great dogs are gonna stop at first scent whether it's a true dog or a tracker and the true dogs are just gonna again have that bird a higher percent of time because they're only paying attention to the scent cones and you get into the whole intelligent disobedience thing which i think we've might have talked about maybe a couple of years ago and you know whatnot but yeah, everybody's different in that respect you know i'm not i'm not the guy that believes just let a puppy be a puppy I just, I don't understand that mentality. Um, but you know, I understand puppies are puppies, but I also understand that we've cyclically bred these dogs for like one to 500 years to point birds. <laughs> and I'm just asking it to point a bird and it's going to mess up nothing punitive, you know, but I, I, I do, I don't separate hunting and training season. Like the dog's always learning, you know, like September 15th, it doesn't, uh, I don't hang up my training clipboard so right, to speak and right. say we'll, we'll resume this in may you know I, I don't i don't have that attitude they're learning 365 days a year i'm very much interested in not creating more work for myself and i'm totally fine with not shooting a bird until the dog has earned it but if i if i got a dog you know you know like i said for me i'm showing them lots of lots of pigeons lots of scent pictures their obedience is there they're an intelligent dog again they have a, at least an adequate nose i get these dogs on 30 to 50 grouse they they ought to be looking pretty darn good whether they're six months old or a year old um, they can develop pretty season. pretty quick if you absolutely if you get them on that kind of wild bird action absolutely yeah. yeah yeah especially again everybody hopes that you know more birds equals you know more caution and okay 50 to 70 percent of the time that's exactly what does happen but what if you're one of those people that has the 30 to 40 percent of the time right and you've just let it be a puppy you just created more work for yourself because it's now had all these wild contacts that you've just kind of been waiting for the flip the switch sure. you know and it's having these self-rewarding behaviors so you know on a training level i'm always more conservative and you know just with the with the number of with the time that i put into the dogs to get their obedience in place and to the training birds they see and then the wild bird contacts they be to see there's just there's zero reason for them to not be great at the end of their first season, you know, zero. And I put that on me. I don't put that on them. Yeah. I put that on me as a handler. And I think people play the, you know, uh, puppy card way too much to the point where they're, they're basically putting themselves in a position to have less operational years out of their dog when they don't need to. 
Um, and not all dogs are created equal. You know, they're, they're not all created equal. Don't get me wrong. But, you know, we can be doing very simple things that we have been working on all season or I'd say all preseason to, to help us with that. But our kids are about the same age. You know, my oldest, you know, I mean, she's in she's in pre-K. She's going to be five in June now when she goes to school. They got rules. They got to follow rules. They're old enough and smart enough to follow rules. And, you know, when you look at when I look at maturity, I've always told all my training clients, whatever we're training for, whatever breed, I have always equated maturity to every month of a dog's life for the first 18 months equivalent equivalent to a year in people. So, you know, again, I look at a five month old dog like a five year old kid. I look at an 18 month old dog is like an 18 year old kid. And some breeds mature faster than others. But when we're talking their hunting instincts, if they've if if you if you as a as a as an owner and a handler have done everything you can to get that dog to thrive, you know, um, with, with training and obedience and developing that bond. And that's all looking really good by the time you hit your season. Well then, yeah, you can hold the dog. You can hold that pup to different standards than somebody that just hasn't had the opportunity to get their dog, those contacts and stuff. And there's people, we both know lots of people that they have the time, and they make the time and dedicate to hunting many, many days a season, but they don't have training birds. Mm-hmm. They just use wild birds, you know, and there's nothing wrong with that. But you're going to I think you're at a disadvantage. Um, you know, you, you and your dog are just greener together when you get to that first season. The only single thing that my dogs don't know how to do when they get to their first season, whether they're five months old or, or whether they're a year old, you know, is is track and you know, tracking puppies, you try to avoid like the plague to have them track, you know, in, in, uh, training. Cause when we're talking launcher pigeons, what they're tracking is ATV scent, your foot scent to the bird, you know? So, so you try to avoid that in training setups and, you know, you just save that time. I can tell who my trackers are when they're that age, you know, as you get later in the summer, but it, I try to, they become more difficult dogs to set up training scenarios for, but I try to avoid that. And the, the, the birds will teach them that once we get to that point. But everything else, they know. They got their obedience. You know, they, they've seen lots of scent pictures. You know, everything's going good with that respect. But, yeah, that's something that many, many breeders and many, many trainers. Um, and the, the comical part to me when I say just, you know, I'm not a just let a puppy be a puppy. You know, let's say we're hitting, we're hitting the season at five months of age or older for me to say that statement and stand behind it. Yeah. Um, because, uh, you know, I start my obedience to my pups at like four months of age and and just the daily grind and, you know, small but frequent doses. But um, I would say very much so, including my own puppies that I've bred that, that, you know, my clients have, my dogs are less trained than any of them. They just do the, I can, they're not well broke, but I can stop my five-month-old puppy flying through the woods if it goes and it bumps a bird. You know, I, I can stop it. You know, it stops. You know, I'm not going to go in the woods unless I can do that. And it's not... It's not hard to obtain if you put in the time to do it. It's just a matter of allocating that. So depending upon where you're at as an individual with your dog, you know, you just have to look at how much work you want to create for yourself. But I'm one that very much feels that, you know, you can you can you can reinforce while you're hunting what you're what yeah. you're um uh been doing all off season or preseason, I should say. Yeah, I think there's a couple things and I mean some of it may be sort of like painting a people kind of using a generalization and stuff. But I think a lot of what you're saying, sometimes I, I feel like honestly people use that let a puppy be a puppy phrase and they're almost trying to protect against inexperienced handlers, you know, and throw me sure. throw me in that boat. Like don't overdo it if you don't know what you're doing. You know, it's almost like a like a 
a breeder or some or a trainer might be sort of protecting themselves and it's, and it's aimed more at the handler than it is the puppy. I mean, I think if you spend enough time around these dogs that we are working with, like the people that are listening to this show, if you're getting, you're getting dogs from good breeders, good, like they're smart and it's, it's, they're, they're crazy smart. And that's, that's the, the advantage that we have years and decades and decades and decades of, of this, you know, highly specialized breeding. And so they are capable of, of learning very quickly a lot, but you yeah. have to, you have to sort of understand your own limitations as a trainer. But one thing I think you point out that's very important is that, and I've heard a lot of good trainers say this is that just like you're saying, you don't, when hunting season shows up, the average Joe, like myself, you have a tendency to sort of let things slip, but it doesn't all of a sudden just become up oh, training season's over. Now it's hunting season. You know, I mean, even though it kind of is for some yeah. people in their mind, but yeah. you you always want to to the best you can. You always want to use the little everyday occurrences and examples as training opportunities because that's the easiest way to train. That's that's the shortcut or the cheating way to train is by working it into your daily routine. And if there's a little issue that you let slip every day, well, let it slip every day for six months and then see how hard it is to fix. Right? Sure. In a in a twelfth grade environment, meaning, yeah. You know, birds flying all over the place. You know, but. Yeah. Yeah, I, I, I mean, I think that the name of the game is that, and again, I, I emphasize, you know, my dogs uh, are probably the least trained pro trainer dogs that you'll ever see. You know, they're, 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 they're not well broke, you know, but they come when called, stop when told, walk on a leash. I always say that, right. you know, and, and they're going to do that at five months old. I don't demand any more out of my five-year-old than I do my five-month-old. Just having that in place, you know, coupled with an easy command for my trackers, I mean, it, that's all the communication I need to make what I call a successful contact. And to me, I, I mean, I define a successful contact as the dog learned what I wanted it to learn from that contact. You can't always say that, but the more times you can say that, the sooner your dog's going to be giving you a consistent performance. Now, every one of us, certainly breeders, you know, and certainly uh, puppy buyers, you know, we we were all looking for, again, that 100-hour dog versus that 300-hour dog, you know? Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. Dogs are not created equal, you know? Uh, in the same litter out of champions, you know, or, you know, two guys that had two nice dogs that they put together and they hope that they get some nice dogs. You get, you know, get some good ones and great ones. And, again, we play the pedigree odds and we, we, we play the odds and we try to go to people that are going to give us, you know, the best opportunity on paper, you know, for, for our puppy. But at the end of the day, dogs aren't created equal, and uh, and that certainly plays into it too. Not just the, not just um, whether or not you've been able to get your dog on on birds, but um, anyway, um, the so that's that's just the whole. Just looking back on on everything that we've been talking about, yeah, the those are the type of tracking dogs. Those are some things to keep in mind for training and moving through some of those hurdles um, and uh, perspectives. But uh, the true dogs, you know, I kind of feel that there's two types of true dogs. I guess for the sake of this conversation, let's call them one-dimensional and two-dimensional. Uh, and we'll use your dogs as an example. You send me some videos that you can articulate on, but just to define those two, you know, so I would call your dog Hartley a one-dimensional true dog. You know, he's a scent cone finder, yep. you know, so, so he's a scent cone finder, you know, whether it's the first point. Or the hundredth, you know, hundredth point of the super hard running bird that's just, you know, that he's got to relocate, you know, um, uh, he's going to be running with that high head and finding a bird by a scent cone, you know. Um, and we hope that the high quality one dimensional true dogs 
um, are quality relocators and so that they do so with a certain degree of caution at a slightly slower speed because they're anticipating to have. I mean, if they're running at you know, breakneck speed on a relocate, that's always our worry when the dogs are going to be bumping birds, yep. you know, um, for our true dogs. Uh, the other type of true dog is your two-dimensional true dog. And that would be like your dog Rose from the videos that I saw. She'll find birds via scent cone, but she will also, once you get there, if that bird has has uh, ran, she'll continue to work that hot track. Again, a hot track, one being that's, you know, seconds to a few minutes old. Yeah, fresh um, track. And yeah, and nine out of ten times, you're going to produce a flush within the 40 yards, you know, when she goes to move off that off of that initial point yeah. um, because that track is so hot. So those those would be the two types of true dogs, you know, for the sake of labels and, and understanding. But um, I, I think Rose is a two-dimensional true dog and for the sake of this conversation, and Harley's a one-dimensional true dog. Yeah, I guess uh, taking that info, if you want to try to paint a picture for your listeners – of those couple of videos that you sent, and we can chat about that if you want. Well, Hartley might want to try to change the the name of that classification. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, Hartley, that was off the cuff naming. You know, I, uh... <laughs> it's funny though. It, that honestly, I mean, of course, these this is I don't, I don't know. This is kind of in the weeds conversation, but it's I think it's a product of obviously you paying a lot of attention and spending a ton of time observing lots of different dogs, and and I think. I had told you, like, like I was listening to some of your other episodes. I mean, sometimes you just say things that I see that with my own eyes, but I don't know how to put it into words. And then, mm-hmm. but because you've you've had this extensive experience, you have developed over time ways to describe it to yourself, and then it sort of connects the dots for me. So that's that's what I see, and I would I would absolutely agree. Now I've seen Rose for two years. I've seen Hartley for seven seasons in the Grouse Woods, and I would I would say I used to jokingly sort of call Hartley a quote unquote home run hitter in that, you know, he was going to slam on point and the bird Mm -hmm. was either there or it was an unproductive point. And if it's unproductive and he starts to relocate, it's like he goes back to hunting where he's kind of like at full speed. He's not hot tracking. He is at full speed. And then I'm always, you know, I've seen this over time. There are times when he's on that relocate attempt, he's going to bump the bird. He's going to slam into it and and bump it. Now, Hartley's one dog. There could be, there's many, many more one-dimensional true dogs that may be way better at relocating than Hartley, but these are just... Yeah, like I said, every type, you know, those four types of trackers that I'm labeling for this conversation, and these two types of true dogs, there are good and bad ones in all of them. There's a spectrum. Um, Yep. Yeah, it's a spectrum of type, and they all can be highly effective dogs, you know, and probably in the trial world, you know, uh, when you're wild bird trials, partly the super duper one dimensional true dog is what they're looking for. And as a wild bird hunter, you know, going to uh, somebody that just does wild bird hunting like yourself and you go to breeders that uh, have trial dog backgrounds, you should hope that it's it's a true style dog like Rose, you know, that can that can help you, you know, after that point when those birds are not cooperating and it's holding tight, you know? Um, And that is, uh, I mean, my opinion, that's the more preferred in terms of wild bird hunting and hunting species that run a lot. You know, that is the type of true dog that, that we want to see. I mean, to, to try to breed that out of a wild bird hunting dog, uh, I think would be a a huge mistake. Um, But training, you know, can take dogs like Rose will say, and just have her, 
have her steady until you give her a release yeah, not and move. Yeah. You know, in, in a trial situation, if you can produce a flush, however far ahead, you know, right. You know, those dogs are okay. Um, because dogs train to be steady to wing shot and fall kind of thing, you know? Yeah. So, 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 so a hot tracker and a true dog doesn't, doesn't become a fault yeah. based on higher level training for that kind of format. Right. But for wild bird hunting, yeah, birds are moving. You want your dog to move once you're there and, you know, settling on that bird again. And, uh, you know, dogs just do it differently. But uh, anyway, yeah, those, those, uh, I think that's what, that's what you got running around your household. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It's, you know, I've, I've owned these two dogs and these two dogs only. And it just so happens that they have this perceived difference that I noticed on my own. You know, I noticed this difference yeah. between the two of them before talking to you about this, but it, it was literally, mm-hmm. I was listening to that episode and it was kind of a light bulb moment because I'm like, well, why does Rose, you know, she has this real cautious stocking like relocate that Hartley mm-hmm. doesn't. And I would say that, yes, me as a hunter, based on what I've seen so far, that if I could carbon copy Rose for the next dog, I would because I really appreciate the intel that I'm getting and I have mm-hmm. gotten over those, these past two seasons hunting with Rose, like what she sort of telegraphs to me about the birds and their movement by, and I'm, she self-releases, she relocates on her own. She does all this on her own and she has which could be a problem, but she has proven to me over two seasons that her sticking with these birds and self-relocating more often than not, a very high percentage of the time does not result in her putting the bird up in the air. She doesn't want to flush the bird. She's just trying to stay yeah. close to it. And yeah. like you said, you could easily, I could easily see where somebody else may say, you know what? I want this dog to stop at first scent and point just like she does, and I don't want her moving. I will walk out 40, 50, 60 yards, and I'll flush this bird. Me as a hunter, I'm fine with Rose moving and creeping and stock. Creeping is a bad word because that would be I – don't, I don't really think that's what she does, but it's – yeah, call, she's, call she's it what track, you want to call she's it. She's tracking the bird. She's yeah. Tracking. And, yeah. and I am making my decisions and my real time play on this bird based on what she's doing. And we're all trying to come together at the right spot. And the grouse is trying to get away from us. And that's the game. I mean, it's, it's, it's absolutely a blast to see it play out. Yeah. It's uh, you're again, it's a, uh, it's, it's a, it's an additional dimension. You know, like I tell you the trackers all the time and I, this is like a daily email in my inbox, you know, uh, <laughs> my dog does both, you know, my dog's both, you know, we, we joked about that earlier, you yeah, know, yeah. <laughs> and it's like, no, it's a tracker and you know, they do, it's just an additional dimension, you know? And, and, uh, you know, the, the, the thing again, that just kind of makes this confusing for some or, dismissive for some you know is in my mind their lack of understanding of scent theory and behavior you know it's a it it, that's like that's a it's a crucial element in understanding how these dogs work and and why and and why it's okay you know that's the thing it's why why is it okay and you know while i'm selectively trying to make these dogs and again i have my true dogs i'll always have some of them too i won't ever be able to just have trackers uh just hard to it's a hard trait to fix but i can pretty much have like 75 to 80 percent in my litters at this point uh if i if i do it right but um you know it's uh it, it just comes down to again understanding that synth theory and behavior and the realm of possibility with it you know and and how to work the dogs effectively you know a lot of people that have trackers you know and they come to me and you know or they've had a tracker that was a good dog 
you know, obviously you don't want a tracker again if you only had one tracker ever and it was a terrible dog, <laughs> you know, <laughs> but, uh, you know, if it was a good dog and people had like five, six dogs and they're wild bird hunter and they hunt species that run a lot, you know, they're, they're like, yeah, yeah, yeah. I like that idea, you know, or something like that. And we talk about it and, and go from there. But people, like I said, it's not more complicated for the, for the tracker to track. It's just initially the handler needs to be a little more educated than they do with uh than a with a true dog you know so yeah um and again it's not a college education it's just you need to be more educated as to how this dog is perceiving its hunt and how it's moving through its hunt and when to step in and when to you know stay back Mm -hmm. and again it's it's a it's a list of five rules you follow it's not 500 you know (laughs) and um because people aren't used to used to it and you know again mainstream bird dog media is not in this country is not focusing on on those nuances and but it's it's different yeah i would say if there was if there was one takeaway from this conversation of this very long and extended conversation (laughs) would be that sort of the focus is on is on the nuance in the gray area like it often is as much as we try to paint black and white situations it's just not just if you go out and get a pointing dog and I would be in this firmly in this category. You get a pointy dog, you just you just kind of like, you know, I don't know any better. I just oh, so my dog's going to point a bird. It's going to go on point. I'm going to sure. walk up and I'm going to flush the bird off his nose. Well, spend enough time doing it, and is there's a lot more going on, and a big part of that is the individual dogs and the way that they work scent and point scent. And I think, you know, the first time I haven't spent a lot of time around tracking dogs, but the first time I was around dogs that I believe were trackers, I had no idea what was going on. They were going on point, moving, pointing, moving, pointing. And I was like an emotional wreck. I had like waiting for this (laughs) bird to get up. I had no idea what was going on, but after having talked to you and like it, it, were I to see this again and know I was with a tracking dog, be, I think it would be a, like a totally different feeling going through that hunt just because you sort of know you're in for a ride at that point. Yeah. And it, and it can be a ride. You yeah. know, it depends on how long these things are, how long those tracks are, you know, but, uh, and you know, yeah, <laughs> emotional wreck is a, is a, is a good thing. Some people don't want to have that feeling, Nick, but <laughs> you know, um, again, I, I, uh, every day of my hunting season, I get to feel like me and my dog just kicked that, you know, overtime winning 55 yard field goal in the Super Bowl, you know, <laughs> and it's a good feeling, you know, and it's, uh, and again, I, I, again, I'm working the dog, that dog I have on the ground, the hunt strategy, you know, to cover theory and behavior, you know, the, to the best that we can. And, uh, I, I, I just collectively find, and again, I run. The one thing, you know, these, these dogs, I won't say are, they're, they're not better than other people's dogs. I'm not ever going to say anything like that because it's, there's lots of great dogs out there of all kinds. But I run a lot of true dogs in braces with a lot of tracking dogs, you know, and I, I say that a lot because you get to see how they complement each other. Sure. And uh, again, more than half the time, the true dog finds, finds bird before the tracker. But again, the tracker finds birds the true dog missed, you know, so the tracker is going to you know, you're going to move through a cover more slowly, you know, but I, I find more birds and, and, uh, that's just a, that's a difference at the end of the day. My, I don't feel my trackers ever miss birds. True dogs might find some birds faster, but, uh, as I tell every person that I have ever guided, hunting is not a race. <laughs> it's an experience, yeah. you know, and you know, whatever ground we covered in the woods on that hunt, we cleared it the best that we can. And if I got a true dog and a tracker on the ground, 
there definitely are not definitely not more uh, birds that are you know likely to be found. You know, your probability of detection is going up at that point, right? It's very high. Yeah, yeah. I feel pretty good going back to incident command saying you know we got an <laughs> 80, 80 to ninety percent pod. You know, when we're when we're looking for birds, <laughs> love it. Well, I better end this thing before it becomes a three parter, Kyle. <laughs> yeah, your listeners they're they're going to have to. Uh, decide whether they want to listen to like a lord of the rings trilogy audiobook or this thing at this point right <laughs> oh that's great yeah that is good uh well i certainly hope for those that that stuck with us to the end here you know like i said we we got into the weeds on some things and had some fun and and definitely over complicated things just for the fun of it because it's the bird shop podcast uh i hope at some point somebody pulled out a tidbit or two and kind of had maybe had a light bulb moment or shed some perspective on something that they didn't previously understand or maybe wouldn't have labeled it that way in their minds. Um, hopefully there was a few nuggets buried in there, but Kyle, thank you for taking the time out of your multiple days for us to get this thing done and, and talking dogs and birds. Like you said, we're not working dogs. We might as well be talking about it. I really appreciate it and uh, glad you could join us again on the bird shop podcast. Yeah. It's always a pleasure talking with you, buddy. Where should people go to find a little bit more information on you and or get in touch with you and find out more about Paint River Llewellyn's? Yeah, I have uh, on social media. Uh, I am on Instagram and Facebook, Paint River Llewellyn's. And uh, then there's paintriverllewellyn's.com. Uh, you can email me. You can message me through social media or uh, visit my website um, and uh, uh, reach me through email there. Happy to answer any any brief questions <laughs> that, that somebody uh, <laughs> might uh, uh, might have and you can see all our events and stuff that we have going on we we have uh, some uh, really great uh, grouse grouse dog grouse dog clinics uh, late summer we still have a couple openings in there and um, yeah always always happy to talk dogs and share information well the prls are telling us this thing's over Kyle so <laughs> I'm gonna I'm gonna let you go <laughs> thank you again for taking the time and we'll talk again soon all right all right nick you take care have a good one you too see ya all right bye-bye thanks for tuning in everybody that does it for this episode of the bird shop podcast quick reminder we are presented by onyx hunt upland institute yukonuba sporting dog and upland gun company rate review subscribe like and share we'll catch you on the next episode of the bird shop podcast Onyx Hunt is the number one hunting GPS app. Join millions of other hunters who trust Onyx Hunt to find more game, discover new access, and hunt smarter. Onyx Hunt shows you nationwide public and private land boundaries. They've got topographic and 3D maps. You can track your route, location, and elevation profile. You can save maps for offline use and take Onyx Hunt with you wherever you go. The most comprehensive hunting tool you'll own Download the Onyx Hunt app today and use the promo code BSP20 to save 20% on your next Onyx Hunt subscription. Know where you stand with Onyx. Hey everyone, this is Nick from the Gundog It Yourself podcast. If you enjoyed this show, then you might want to check out my show as well. We highlight and break down the ins and outs of training your own hunting dog. Whether it's a bird dog or even the occasional hound dog episode, we cover all topics related to hunting dogs. Check out Gundog It Yourself on any podcast streaming platform and hit the subscribe button to be sure not to miss any future episodes.